Thank you, guys. Thank you, Melinda. Great job. Great thoughts. I want to be faithful, amen? I want to live in such a way by the grace of God that someday Jesus says to me, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I want to have, whenever my days are done, the testimony that Paul had when he said, I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. <laughs> I have fought a good fight. Amen? Go ahead and get in your Bible to John chapter 17. I know that's your heart's desire too. That's why you're back on a Sunday night. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. And I know you hear me say this all the time. I wish it would sink in. I, I hope you'd never take for granted that you're privileged to be a part of God doing a great work. Uh, God has been so good to us. We are just past the halfway point in our Sunday night series on Bible doctrine for uh, those of you who find it more natural to love God with your heart, uh, you probably would have struggled more with uh, this particular Sunday night series. For those of you who more naturally love God with your mind, um, then this would have been right up your alley. It would be easy for you. But the thing of it is, is that God has asked us, commanded us, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. And while some of us may find it easier to love God with our strength and others with our heart, if we're going to be mature followers of Jesus, we will grow in love for our God in all of those areas of life. And my goal in this series has simply been for our church family to become people who understand why. Uh, people begin uh, to know sound doctrine when someone teaches them what. What is sound doctrine? What does the Bible teach? People become wiser. They become more mature in their faith when they learn why. And unfortunately, uh, much of American Christianity is being increasingly dumbed down and increasingly ignorant of key Bible doctrines. And so we are spending time on them. Last week, we began talking about the biblical doctrine of separation. We talked about the clear command for Christian people to be separate from unbelievers and from the world in which we live. Satan is the God, small g, of this world. And this world operates on his value system. And so it makes no sense whatsoever for places called churches or people called Christian to imitate this world in an effort to reach this world. We talked about the fact that biblical separation is not just one directional. Separation is not just separation from the world. If it's biblical separation, it also includes a second direction, and we are separated unto God and unto the gospel. And failing to properly separate from this world or failing to separate unto God will greatly hurt our children. The next generation suffers most from a failure in this area of our Christian life. Uh, and if you think I'm off base in that statement, just go back to the first couple of chapters to the book of Judges and find out what happened to the children of knowledgeable, spiritual, obedient followers of Jehovah who didn't separate from the people of the land and failed to pass their faith on to the next generation. Now our subject tonight is a second aspect of the doctrine of biblical separation, and I'm going to use a big word, uh, ecclesiastical separation. 
And I'll explain that in a moment. But if teaching on separation from the world is rare, and it is, uh, this aspect of biblical separation is even more rare. Ecclesiastical separation is just a big word that refers to churches separating from churches teaching false doctrine and Christians separating from other Christians embracing false doctrines and false churches. And I'm going to tell you before I start tonight, not only is this a difficult subject, I am hesitant to do it uh, because I think this is a Bible truth we need to be careful with. Uh, I think it's very easy when you uh, attend a biblical church that teaches sound doctrine, that has the hand of God in what's going on, I think it's very easy to develop an attitude of superiority and condescension toward believers who are different from us. Let me just say before we even start, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And that's true whether your pride is over your ability to throw a uh, pigskin that's inflated through a hoop or whether we are knowledgeable about big, uh, biblical things. Pride is gross and resisted by God in any form in which it exists. The Scriptures say, knowledge puffeth up. Now, I hope the response of most people here tonight will be to grasp and graciously apply the truth we talk about together. I think some people here will just say, you know, I've always felt that way, but I didn't really understand why. Uh, and this doctrine is a big deal. There's not anybody who's serious enough about their faith to return to church on a Sunday night who doesn't have a deep desire to pass your faith on to your children and grandchildren. Not one. And if you and I fail in this doctrine, like the doctrine of separation from the world, this doctrine greatly hurts the next generation. I want to begin by asking a couple of questions. Is attempting to unify all those who claim to be Christian in our day God's plan for His people? Is attempting to unify all who claim to be Christian part of the preparation for a one-world religion of the tribulation led by the false prophet? Should we be concerned about the lack of unity between all Christian people in our day? Are divisions among people who claim to believe in the Lord Jesus helping or hurting God's work today? Those are all good questions, and none of them have easy answers. What I would like to do tonight is put some biblical light on those questions. If you're able to stand, if you would stand tonight, please, in honor of God's Word. The title of my thought tonight is Avoid Those Contrary to Sound Doctrine. Avoid Those Contrary to Sound Doctrine. In John chapter 17, and when I say John 17, it ought to immediately come to your mind the Lord's Prayer. People call the prayer that Jesus taught in Matthew 6 the Lord's Prayer, but that is not accurate. Matthew chapter 6, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and so on and so forth. That is the Lord teaching on prayer. It is not the Lord praying. John 17 is the Lord praying. It is truly the Lord's Prayer. So prayer on His last night before His Passion and Calvary, a prayer that was just witnessed and heard by the 11 true apostles. And in this Lord's Prayer, I want to 
pick a section out of it in John chapter 17 and verse 19. John 17, 19. Jesus here prays and says, For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they, may, that they all may be one. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Thank you. you. might be seated. Now, I don't know what you think when you read this section of the Lord's Prayer, but it is a very encouraging thought to me in verse 20 to uh, read that Jesus did not just pray for the apostles, for these alone. He said, but for also for them which shall believe on me through their word. By the way, that means Jesus is praying. Uh, he prayed for you and for me. In one way or another, in a roundabout way, you and I all believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're here and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, through the word of the apostles. And so you and I are a part of Christ's prayer. This particular section of the Scripture is also at the root of the movement and effort to unify everyone who calls himself Christian. By the way, doing that is not new. Uh, that is something that has been attempted and been on the mind of people literally for centuries. Their line of thinking is that since Jesus prayed that believers would be one, that we should be doing everything we can today to unite all believers in some way to be the answer to His prayer. You see, to them who think like that, setting aside most key Bible doctrines that God has given us for the sake of unity is a sacrifice we should make because being one as Christians, in their mind, is more important than other commands like Titus 1.13 where we are supposed to be sound in the faith or Jude 3 where we're supposed to, supposed to earnestly contend for the faith. Now this unity makes uh, a lot of sense to quite a lot of people. Uh, because it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look around us and recognize that a lot of the divisions among people called Christian are divisions over issues that are not in the Bible at all. I mean, there are Christians that separate from one another uh, because one group uh, uses a, a, a canned music, they would call it, a, a cassette tape or a, a DVR or whatever, a CD to play instead of live music. There are people who would separate from other believers because someone's hair touches their uh, ear. There are people who would separate from other people over specific definitions of what it means to be biblically modest. Uh, listen, the list of things that divide Christianity is huge. And some are issues of importance and others are, quite frankly, they're trivial. Now, since the object of Christ's prayer was not just the apostles, but Christians living, uh, not just the apostles and Christians living then, it is also obvious that it is impossible for all believers over the last 2,000 years to be physically united and together in this life. And so Jesus is obviously praying for something in the future. Let's read verses 20 and 21 again together. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they, 
Who's the they? Them that believe on Christ through the word of the apostles. That they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. It is physically impossible for all believers for the last 2,000 years who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ through the words of the apostles to be physically together. And so what Christ is praying for here is not something for today, it is for something in the future. You see, in a future day, uh, there will be unity of the faith. Uh, there will be a future day when all believers assemble together in heaven. Uh, in that day, there will be no more churches, plural. Today, there are churches, plural. Jesus used the word plural 12 times. But in that day, once and for all and finally, all believers will assemble together. And at that time and not until that time, all believers will be then the church. But the day of the physical unity of believers has not yet come. The fulfillment of Christ's prayer request is not intended for today. Listen, I'm not justifying all the divisions. I'm just saying that's not what he's talking about here for all believers to be physically united. That's obvious in this text. But those who have an agenda to unify all believers, they don't care. If that is not obvious enough for you, I want us to consider the record of the way Christianity was practiced in the Bible. Each of the churches, the apostles, and early Christians started were independent, self-governing institutions with Christ as their head. They each had a pastor as their earthly leader. They each had deacons who were called out servant leaders. They each had the Great Commission as their marching orders and focus. They each had the Bible as their final authority. And by the way, for the first 25 or 30 years after Christ's resurrection, the Bible they had was the Old Testament. But it unified them. There were no denominations. There were no headquarters to which they sent money or that told them what to do. They were unified in their faith in Christ as taught by the apostles. There were no organizations established by Jesus to unify them in Christian causes in their world. They were unified by the same wonderful Holy Spirit who had baptized them all into the body of Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. There were no organizations established by Jesus, Paul, or Peter to promote them working together. There were none. There was no admonition by Paul, Peter, or any New Testament author to any of the churches or leaders to whom they wrote that they ought to get together to use their resources more efficiently in their world. Now, in contrast to Christians joining together, on which many focus today, there are repeated warnings throughout the New Testament about false Christians, false Christian leaders, false doctrine, and bad behavior by Christian people. I am unaware, and if I'm wrong, uh, you can correct me later, I am unaware of anything recorded in the New Testament of churches joining together in anything but financial support for missionary work, or sending money to the poor persecuted saints in Jerusalem and Judea. In fact, even that unity in financial causes was driven by a missionary rather than an organization. And individual churches and individual believers decided on their own whether they wanted to follow and be a part of that work. 
Hear me, in the complete absence of example or admonition to churches or church leaders in the New Testament, if that is not enough, in Revelation, Jesus spoke to the seven churches in Asia near the end of the first century through the great apostle John. By this time, the New Testament was complete other than the words of Christ inspired that John wrote from the Isle of Patmos. And as best as I can tell from a map, and maps don't show roads from that day, the farthest distance between any of those seven churches was Pergamos to Laodicea, and it was about 70 miles. And the closest of those seven churches was Sardis to Philadelphia, it was about 40 miles. And though those churches were in geographical proximity, and though the letter is addressed to the seven churches in Revelation 1-4, Jesus never mentioned one single thing about these churches working together. Not one. He simply dealt with each church as an individual, independent body of believers. Period. And though Jesus never mentioned joining together even one time, He did warn them about false doctrine in their own church. <laughs> he warned the church of Pergamos in Revelation 2.15 and the church in Thyatira in Revelation 2.24 about false doctrine among them. <laughs> false doctrine in the church. False doctrine promoted by Christian people. Now, I, I, I'm not implying that doing things together with other churches or other Christians is bad or wrong. I'm not, even, I'm not implying it. But I am saying this. The basic philosophy that we need to set aside our doctrine and independence to be one is not in the New Testament. Let me just say that again so that you can wake up and say Amen. The basic philosophy that we need to set aside our doctrine and independence to be one is not in the New Testament. That's better. Not good, but better. Contrast the New Testament philosophy of each church being an independent, self-governing body of Christ with there being hundreds of denominations today. Contrast that with there being a multitude of organizations whose sole mission is to unite religions of all sorts, like the Interfaith Alliance, or unite churches of all sorts, like the National Council of Churches and the World Council of Churches. Listen, that is contrary to the New Testament. Contrast the New Testament philosophy of each church being an independent, autonomous, self-governing body of Christ with there being an endless list of organizations and ministries whose sole purpose is to combine the resources of Christian people for various causes. L listen, I get it. It would be nice to have uh, everybody together on, on something to combine our resources. I'm just saying... That's not in the New Testament. I'm not condemning all these causes. I'm simply contrasting what's going on in Christianity with what we're told in the New Testament. Can I tell you what's going to happen if Christ tarries and local churches continue to become more watered down and weaker and weaker and weaker? All these other organizations who are drawing all their people resources and financial resources from local churches, they are going to shut down. Because that's where they get their money. 
And there's people of all sorts who don't serve in their local church who that's all they do. There's something wrong with that. Again, I'm not condemning these causes. I'm just contrasting what's going on today with what is in the New Testament. Listen, are we Bible-believing Christians or, or, or not? Do the Scriptures contain all that we need? Are they sufficient for us to obey and follow the Lord Jesus? And, and though I condemn the mission of uniting all the religions uh, because Christ has no concord with Belial, and I condemn the mission of uniting the churches of the world because there's no real unity without truth. And though I will not join or support any organization that gets rid of key Bible denominations, I, honestly, you know what? I'm glad for any good they do. If you're here and you're a hater, and, and you just hate uh, that people who are not like us unite and do some good things in, 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 in our world. Can, can I challenge you to chill? Just because you are not a part of them and don't want to send them your money or give them your effort, you and I ought to rejoice for any good that gets done in our world. Listen, our world has enough hatred. Our world has enough people broken by sin. Our world has enough bad stuff going on that anybody who's doing good, we ought to be glad for it. But with what's going on around us, I think it's important we understand some of the clear warnings that were given to us. Remember, ecclesiastical separation is simply the separation of churches and Christian people from other places called churches and people who call themselves Christian for differences on key Bible doctrines. You say, Brother Wallace, does the New Testament teach that? Oh, yeah. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, to me, to me, uh, working together more when we're already outnumbered makes sense. To me. Uh, listen, I, I understand the advantages of pooling our financial and human resources. I get it. Uh, but Jesus didn't ask you or me how the church and His work is supposed to be ordered. Jesus didn't establish a pattern that was most efficient. Jesus established a pattern that best protects His people. Listen, if there is a one-headed big denominational creature and that head is corrupted, all kinds of places are corrupted. But if we have a New Testament model where there are many churches, each of which has Christ as their head, a pastor leading them, the Great Commission as their uh, marching orders, and the Bible as their final authority, when one of those heads becomes corrupted, all the other ones go on just fine. Now, when it comes to associations with other churches and Christians, we've been warned. And though some of this isn't the way you and I would establish our church, really, this is not our church, this is the Lord's church. Amen. And so the doctrine of ecclesiastical separation is true because it's taught by statement and example throughout the New Testament. And so what I'd like to do with the remaining, however much time I have left, I'd like to make some practical observations and applications of ecclesiastical separation. Uh, first, please go in your Bible to Matthew 7. Matthew 7. 
I know what I'm speaking about tonight, it literally is brand new to a lot of y'all, and that's okay. Once you've been a Bible student for a few years, there's basically nothing new under the sun. But a lot of people haven't heard of this, but it's not because it's not in the Scripture. Here's number one. We're repeatedly warned in the New Testament about false Christians and Christians promoting false doctrine. To be honest with you, there are many more warnings in the New Testament about our associations with Christians than the world. Last week, we covered some of them solemn warnings. Say, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, yeah, it does if you stop and think about it, because as a Christian, we understand the world is not our friend. And so we're not naturally inclined to really listen to much of what they have to say anyway, but when it comes to Christian people, we take our guard down. Now, I've found some kind of warning to believers about other Christians or bad Christian doctrine by every one of the eight human authors in the New Testament. There is some kind of a warning in 22 of the 27 New Testament books. Now, I haven't found one in Luke or the Gospel of John or 1 Thessalonians, Philemon or 1 Peter. I'm not aware of any of them in those five, but every one of the other 22 books has at least one. It's a pretty significant series of warning. Let's begin with a warning from Jesus in Matthew 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing. So how do false prophets appear? Sheep. Uh, But inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. The men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles. Even so every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot... Bring forth evil fruit, and neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not down fo- not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast in the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. He that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils. And in thy name done many wonderful works. Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. By the way, that's a pretty clear warning. There's going to be false prophets dressed like sheep. And there's going to be people who do great things in the Lord's name who say, Lord, Lord, but Jesus doesn't know them and they don't know Him. I didn't write this. I'm just quoting Jesus. According to Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, Paul pulls together what we would call today the staff of the church in Ephesus. The church of Ephesus was a very large church. And he brings these leaders together in a place called, I think it's Miletus if I'm remembering right. If I'm not, please forgive me. And he has something to say to them. Paul spent longer in the city of Ephesus than any other place that we're aware of. And so these were men, in most cases, who were either personally won by him and trained by him, or, or both. Notice as a part of his warning to these Christian leaders, beginning in verse 26, he said, Wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. He said, Well, Paul, how, will you, how did you do that? Verse 27, I've not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. By, by the way, he didn't stop with the gospel. He declared to them all the counsel of God. Notice his warning here in verse 27. Take heed therefore unto yourselves. 
to, over the, to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Here, also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things. What's their motive? To draw away disciples after them. Say, what should you do? Therefore, watch. Be wary. Watch. Beware. And remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with, with tears. Listen, uh, among these church leaders, Paul says, hey, listen, some of you are going to take away disciples from the truth. Say, what is that? That's a warning. You and I need to know sound doctrine. We need to beware. Uh, turn up uh, another book to Romans chapter 16. Of course, the church in Rome at that time was nothing like the monstrous whore that it is today. Uh, if you don't believe that, go to Revelation 17 or 18. By the way, I don't say that about the people. The people are sincere people. That organization is a corrupt organization. But at the time when that church was a healthy local church, and Paul wrote to them, notice his warning in Romans 16, verse 17. It says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. By good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Notice there, there are leaders. They're causing the divisions. They're not taken away in a division. There are leaders who would bring in false doctrine contrary to the doctrine they've been taught. And what's he say? Avoid them. What kind of method do they have? Good words and fair speeches. By the way, clear speaking only attracts those interested in truth. Good words and fair speeches attract people of all sorts. It's a warning to Christians about those causing false doctrine and bringing divisions because of it. He said, avoid them. We need to know. Sod doctrine. We need to beware. Go up to, in your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 2. I know it's quiet in here tonight. I, I, I like a church that says amen some. And, and I don't know when you're quiet if that means it's an oh my moment or if that means I've just lost you and, and you're uh, right now going back to the Bengals game in your mind. Don't tell me if Duke lost because I recorded it. I don't know yet. Who won that football game? Never mind. Notice the warning of Peter here. Uh, by the way, this is very clear in the Scriptures. Very clear. You say, why? why don't people preach and teach it? Because it's hard to apply. It's painful to apply. They don't want to do it. 2 Peter chapter 2, notice what Peter says in verse 1. It says, but there were false prophets also among the people, that's among Israel, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies. So notice among the believers there would be false teachers bringing in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. You say, well, how many will listen? Many shall follow their pernicious ways. How will they treat 
people really following Christ. It says, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Notice their motives. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. So what is that? That's a warning from the Apostle Peter about Christian leaders who would bring in false doctrine for their own good. Uh, by the way, I could go on and on and on. Those are just four examples of 54 warnings that I've personally found in the New Testament. There may be more. That's just four. It's quite clear we're repeatedly warned about false Christians and Christians promoting false doctrine. You say, Brother Wally, what should I do in light of that? Well, we read in Romans 16 that we're supposed to mark them and avoid them. Go on your Bible to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Say, so what's that sound like? Sounds like ecclesiastical separation to me. By the way, this doctrine isn't going to make you any friends. Maybe you're not like me. I don't like it when people don't like me. I don't. I'm really geared. I want people to like me. And like I say, you might not be like that. In fact, if you're not like that at all, you're probably weird. <laughs> but because I want people to like me, I, find that I found this doctrine as a lay person and now as a pastor, I find it very difficult. L listen, this impacts us in our families. This impacts us in churches that we could be in now or that our families are in, that we've been in in the past. This is a lot of difficult practical applications. What should I do? Uh, look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. How about verse 14? It says, If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, have no company with him that he may be ashamed. <laughs> so if you're a Christian reading this epistle from the Apostle Paul and you say, no, nah, I'm not going to do that, have no company with him that he may be ashamed. What is that? Ecclesiastical separation? Look at verse 6. It says, now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. That's pretty clear. Withdraw from a brother walking disorderly. So what's it mean to walk disorderly? That's defined in verse 11. For we hear that there are some among you which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. <laughs> I didn't write that. He said, withdraw from people that refuse to work who are just busy in other people's business. Okay. Say, brother, well, I get it. I hear you when you talk about all these warnings. I, I see that. I see what you're talking about. What should I do? I'm just going to give you a few statements because we just don't have time. Uh Here's the first thing we should do. Rejoice over anybody who's at least preaching the Gospel. Amen. Listen, if Paul in Philippians 1 could rejoice that people were preaching the Gospel to add to his bonds, you and I can rejoice over somebody preaching the Gospel who's using a different Bible or handling things different than we do. And listen, it is not good faithful following of Jesus to be angry at everyone who's not like us. That, that's just not good. What should we do in light of these warnings? Here's number two. 
Guard yourself from pride and an attitude of spiritual superiority. Hey, don't decide that Bible Baptist Church is better than every other church and the people here are better than Christian people everywhere. Don't do that. that, that that's pride. God resists the proud. Listen, quite frankly, a lot of people reject this doctrine and don't uh, teach it because of the harsh and condescending attitudes of people who embrace this. So what should we do in light of these warnings? Here's number three. God yourself from living in fear or defeat. Jesus Christ's churches will always continue. It was Jesus Himself who said, on this, uh, on this I will build My church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There will always be true churches. There will always be faithful Christians. There will always be places who are a part of the faithful remnant. Always. Now, there are not as many of them as today as there were 30 years ago. And if you go back 70 or 80 years, there was a lot of them in America. But they're still around and they always will be around. So, so, so don't just uh, say, well, well, it's just such a woe is me. It's all going on out there. I'm just going to stay home and me and my family just going to worship in the house. Stop living in fear. Amen. Listen, find some faithful church. Find some man of God. Find some people who just sincerely try to follow Jesus. Be a part of it. Here's number four. Be cautious about which outside ministries you invest yourself and your money in. I don't bring in missionaries here who are different from us in major doctrines. Screen them. By the way, one of the questions I always ask them, I said, is there a translation from the Texas Receptus in the language where you're going? What Bible do you plan to use? We don't, I don't bring in missionaries here who are going to a foreign country using a Bible from a different text. Say why? It's called ecclesiastical separation. There is no issue more important than the Bible issue. Every doctrine we have comes from the Bible. I don't go to the local meeting of all the pastors in Fairfield. Listen, a lot of them guys are nicer guys. Not nice guys, and quite frankly, there are a lot of them, they're nicer guys than me. I try to be nice. Uh, And some of you are just so nice, it almost makes me puke. Uh, (laughs) I try to be nice, but it's, it's not natural for me. Any niceness that's, that's in me, honestly, it's the work of God and grace in my life. But listen, I don't have anything really in common with somebody with a different Bible, somebody with a different plan of salvation, and somebody who believes differently about who Jesus was. I don't have anything in common with somebody who sprinkles babies instead of Biblical baptism. Listen, I wish them well. I'm glad for any good they do. I'm not angry. I'm not protesting. I'm not, I, I, I'm not, but I'm not being part of it. Say, so, well, you would be better thought of in the community if you were. That's true. Hey, I have to provide leadership for Bible Baptist Church in my own home and family. And you have to provide leadership for your own home and family. Listen, when when it comes to applying this, this is not easy stuff. I mean, what what do you do when your uh, Catholic cousin invites you to the sprinkling of, of their baby? 
No, I, you, you, you've got to answer to God for what you do. Um, back when we lived near them, we just went, sat in back. So why'd you do that? Ecclesiastical separation. We love them. They're our family. But I'm not having any part of that. So I don't agree. Well, I'm not asking you to. I just said it's my job to provide leadership for Bible Baptist Church and my family, and it's your job to provide leadership for your own home. Listen, this is not going to look the same on all of us. So, Brother Waller, what should I do in light of this? I'll make effort to personally know the Bible and something of the history of biblical Christians. See, people don't recognize what's going on today because they don't know what went on yesterday. See, when they call it revival because a bunch of people called Christians from groups of all sorts get together for a rock concert and a light show, they have no idea that revival in history meant that people came and bars closed. And churches were filled with changed people. But if you don't know anything about history, you don't know anything about the history of biblical Christians, how do you know? What should I do? Here's the last thing. And I know that's your favorite part of every message. Plug yourself and your family deeply in a local church committed to the Scriptures and sound doctrine. I don't know of any thing that is better long-term for you as a believer in Jesus Christ than being committed to one of the Lord's churches that's preaching the Scriptures. That is good for you. It is good for your children. It's good for your grandchildren. Because when we fail to separate, it will affect our children far more than it will affect us. If you don't believe that, read the first two chapters of the book of Judges. Separated from the world, from false doctrine, unto God. You quietly stand.